Hey everybody, thank you for downloading the first episode of LGBT and D. I'm very excited to have people listening to this. Uh, I just wanted to give everyone a quick trigger warning for this first episode. There is some content here that may be difficult for some people to listen to in the first half of this episode, uh, involving the death of a young child. If anybody does not feel comfortable listening to that, I encourage you to skip ahead. You won't miss anything vital to the narrative, uh, and I completely understand. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it, and I hope you stick around for the rest of the adventure. Aluria, a land once ravaged by war, now ravaged by a mysterious sickness. The Great War of Aluria took place over the course of nearly a thousand years. Spanning from the year 237 to 1129, the brutal war between dwarves and elves only ended when Dorian Redsteel took command of the dwarven armies and beat the elves into a groveling submission. Redsteel was named the King of Aluria, passing the mantle down to his son, Bramron Redsteel. The Redsteel clan reigned relatively peacefully over Aluria for a number of years, until just a short hundred years ago, when the sickness started. It started seemingly from nowhere, but when Bram Redsteel's wife and child were taken by the mysterious disease, the elves were forced to take the fall. King Redsteel led the way on an extinction of the elven race, but if they were truly the cause of the sickness, a disease that has a 100% mortality rate within a month of contraction, their eradication did nothing to stop or even slow its spread. With the outlook for the sick being glum, it's not uncommon for those that contract the disease to take their own lives or be exiled from their villages. In fact, even the doctors of the land have given up on the sick, and the former practice is no more. This is the world that will be the backdrop for our campaign, which starts now. This is LGBTND. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, everyone in between or irrespective of that gender binary, welcome to LGBTND, a Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition actual play podcast staffed entirely by people of the LGBT community. This is going to be our first of two introduction episodes where we will get to know our characters that will be staffing this campaign. I'm going to be your dungeon master. You can call me Andy, because that's my name. Joining me up first will be Valerie. Valerie, would you like to tell us just a little bit about yourself and the character that you will be playing for this campaign? Uh, my name's Valerie. I am a non-binary trans woman from England. And my character is called Tara Fawn Fawn. So when we join Tara in her backstory, she's standing underneath of a tree. The time is quite late and the night is very dark. The only light comes from the moon peeking through heavy cloud cover, as well as the occasional lightning strike lighting up the night sky. There's a heavy rain that obscures her as she looks ahead to a large stone building. Tara knows what she's here for. She's been practicing for it for quite some time. Training to kill this elf blood woman at the command of Winnie of Featherwind. Another crack of thunder booms overhead as Tara steals her nerves. What does she do? How's she approaching the house? How's she feeling? Just kind of set her approach for us, if you don't mind. 
She nervously checks herself, looking down to her crossbow, her short sword, checking her gear. Less for practical purposes, more because she's quite nervous about this, but after seeing herself, she approaches silently and stealthily. As she's approaching this stone building on the outskirts of town, it's apparent that the woman that lives here, a woman by the name of Magnala, is quite wealthy. It is a two-building home, or a two, a two-story building. Uh, there is a large front door on the front side of the house towards which she approaches with two windows, one on each side of it. She also hears off to her right side there is a dog staked in the front yard that she hears the chain rattling and the dog starts barking as she makes her approach. Does there seem to be a way to get in without going past the dog? She could conceivably go around the left side of the house. Has she scouted this house before, or is this sort of her first time here, would you figure? I'm assuming she scouted the place a little bit to understand the basic layout, being quite methodical. Right. Yeah, she'd know that there is a back door to this building as well that she'd be able to make her way through. She tries to avoid the animal as best she can. Okay. As she makes her way around the other side of the building, the dog continues its barking, but as it watches her disappear around the side of the building, after a couple of seconds, its barks seem to quiet as it basically gives up, realizing that it's not going to be able to get her with the uh, chain around its neck. Good. So she makes her way towards the back door. The back door mirrors basically the front side of the house. A large wooden door with windows on either side. There are curtains that are drawn over each window to block anybody from seeing inside. Okay. I try to uh, lockpick the door. I'm assuming I have these tools. Yeah, those would have been provided for you. If you uh, wouldn't mind, would you like to go ahead and uh, roll for that? That is a big old eight. Okay, with an eight, it is uh, going to take her a little while, but after a couple of tries, she hears the pop of the locking mechanism that keeps the door shut. So she feels that the lock is undone and she would have access to this door. Yeah, she's uh, kind, her hands are kind of shaking a little bit, so she's a bit, even if she's practiced, she's not terribly quick. She slowly opens the door, trying to peer around and see inside. The room that she enters into, or would be looking into, seems to be a sort of kitchen area. There is a pot off to one side, several cabinets and cupboards that you would assume would have cooking essentials, ingredients, pots, and things of that nature. There is a uh, small block that you would see, or that she would see on one of the counters that has sort of a variety of knives and things of that nature, but nobody is in this room at the moment. She tries to move through the house silently. She thinks back to the other kind of architecture in this region thinks about where she of the master bedroom might be. Okay. She would know from sort of her previous adventures, so to speak, that uh, generally houses of this nature, the master bedroom would be up on the top floor, along with the any other bedrooms of other people that might live in this house. So she carefully makes her way upstairs, trying to avoid making any kind of sounds, like on creaky floorboards or something. Yeah, she uh, would be able to slowly creep her way along. The room is pretty dark. There's no sort of torches or anything going on. Does 
Remind me, does she have any sort of way that she's seeing through the dark? Is she more feeling her way along at this point? Uh, that's a very good question. She might have, I mean, since she knows she was going to do this, she might have had, like, a hooded lantern that can fully close or something to that regard, just so that she has some light to, to look at, see her surroundings. Right. So, yeah, she's able to creep her way slowly along to the front room. She sees the windows that she would have seen from the other side previously. And then uh, off to her left is a rather large wooden staircase that would take her up to the top floor. And then, once again, she slowly tiptoes her way silently up these steps taking care of any loose or creaky floorboards and making sure to avoid those as she gets to the top. She sees, once she is up there, a long hallway. There are two doors on the left and one door on the right of this hallway. Hmm. Do any look bigger than the other? The second door on the left seems to be slightly bigger than the other two. She carefully makes her way to that one. Is she trying the handle, I assume, or...? Uh, she's going to carefully look about. I th- I'm assuming she she would know, at least, if it's common for, like, wealthy people to place any sort of traps in this kind of region. She might be carefully keep just keeping an eye out for something that might be a problem. And then, but yeah, then use the handle. Yeah, she would know that, uh, especially in this town, it's a fairly peaceful town. Not much of this nature has happened like this. Most people get along fairly well, so things such as traps on bedroom doors aren't aren't necessarily commonplace. People lock their front doors, and the more paranoid of them may put traps on that, or perhaps their windows. But as far as inside of the house, it's not very common for that to happen now. Yeah, so she makes her way in, just um, trying to be as quiet as possible. Okay. Once she puts her hand on this door, she finds that it is unlocked. It opens slowly and silently, to probably her relief. She sees inside there is a large wardrobe directly across from her. And then to her right, against the wall, is a large master bed. There is... there are, rather, two people sleeping in the bed. A blonde woman with rather pointy ears that she would assume to be the elf blood woman that she has been sent here for. She is curled into the side of a human-appearing man who has short cropped brown hair and they both seem to be sleeping peacefully at this point well then she walks over and tries to get the best position she knows she isn't to leave any witnesses she's kind of just like nervous and sort of shaking so she attempts to cut the throat of the human male first, as he's likely the strongest. She does that, and immediately then tries to cover the mouth of the elven woman and do the same, the heart, uh, elven blood woman, and do the same. With her shaking hands, Tara's sword slices a rather jagged opening in the throat of the human man. She sees his eyes snap open shortly before the life drains out of them, blood pouring down his throat to collect on his pillowcase. And then quickly she moves across to cover the mouth and the same thing happens to this woman that she has been sent here for. Her eyes snap open and she makes direct eye contact with Tara. She starts to make a noise, but the hand over her mouth is going to stifle any sort of noises that she makes. So she hears, rather than any sort of concrete words, more of a before the life is quickly snuffed out of this woman's eyes. As Tara watches this, she hears another voice, this time a 
much smaller voice coming from the doorway of this bedroom as she hears someone say, What are you doing to my mommy? She freezes for a moment. She shakes and there's a moment that feels much longer for her and she just remembers the words in her head. No witnesses. And then steals herself for just a brief second, turns around and says, Shh, it's okay, it's okay. And then she very gently approaches, trying to kind of like, while she turns around, uh, hide the sword behind her back. She sees, standing in the doorway, there is a very young girl with curly red hair. Tara would estimate her to be perhaps about eight years old. She's standing in what looks to be a uh, rather nice night dressing gown. She has a very small hooded lantern to sort of light her way as she enters into her parents' bedrooms. And at the sight of this stranger, you see tears jump to her eyes. She's not crying quite yet, but she's obviously very confused and uncomfortable as she looks up at Tyra and says, what, what, What's happening to her? She looks at the, uh, the girl, shaking a little bit, feeling sick to her stomach, and then says, She's okay, it's okay. Just, just uh, come over here and extends her uh, hand, not holding anything out. The girl seems to be frozen in place for a second before her hand that's not holding the lantern reaches out to take Tara's. It's shaking slightly as she doesn't understand what's going on. The moment she touches Tara's hand, she grabs the girl by the arm, pulls her forward towards her, grabs her so that she has a hand over her mouth, and then says, shh, it's all gonna be okay. And then shaking and crying, she cuts her throat. As Tara draws her blade across the child's throat, she watches as her eyes go wide and Almost instantly, the color just drains out of her face. Uh, blood does start pouring down the front of her shirt, though, as Tyra holds her hand over the child's mouth. There's a slight squeak, but no words are attempted as she watches the life drain from out of her eyes. She breathes deeply, tears falling in her eyes. Uh, she kind of shakes, her like hands are shaking, almost as if she's about to drop the blade, but doesn't. So, what's she doing is she seems to have uh, completed the mission she was sent here for. She steals herself and it takes a moment and then heads out and back, like making sure as much as possible that she's still quiet in case there are other people in this building. Okay, on her way out, is she leaving through the back door she came in through, or would she go through the front? She goes through the back. Okay. On her way out, she doesn't get the impression that there is anybody else in this house. The air feels very still. The only sounds that she would hear would be the occasional thunder from the storm that's still going on outside. As she makes her way back around the front of the house again, the dog that had barked at her before seems to have quieted as well. It doesn't pay her any mind as she slips off into the night. And I assume she would be heading back to Winius? Okay. Yep. So that would be a rather, I don't want to say large building, it's not particularly tall, but it is a rather expansive stone building on the outskirts of the town of Mithalor. As Tara approaches it, there are 
no lights on. It seems to be, or at least no visible lights from the outside. Everything seems to be quiet. As she uh, goes and makes her way there, she does her best to kind of not leave any tracks or anything as to her location. She kind of likes circles and backs around a bit to confuse anyone who is trying to follow any sort of tracks. But since she's in a storm, it, 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 it's fairly easy for her to kind of just like not leave away uh, uh, the trail basically to be followed. Yeah, any sort of trail or footprints that she would leave along the way are pretty easily covered up as she makes her way back to this building. Tara enters, just uh, kind of familiar with this building by now. Yeah, she's been here for a little bit now, I'd assume. She'd know her way around the inside of it and to wherever it is that she's trying to find. Is there any evidence that that when you're still awake at this point? Um, if she, as she would pass by what would be equivalent to Winnie's office, there would be a slight light coming out from the sort of crack between the door and the floor. And if Tyra were to listen carefully, she would hear the uh, scratching sound of like a quill on paper. She knocks on the door. From the inside, she hears a... Uh, Simple command. Enter. She uh, opens the door and enters the room. And she stands there in front of all the presumers when you Yes, there is a rather tall, fairly thin woman sitting at a large wooden desk. She has papers scattered all across it. There is a black book on the desk in front of her, which is where her writing utensil is. She's she's busy writing things down inside of the book. The room itself is fairly open. The walls are lined with bookshelves that have books of all sorts of shapes and sizes, different subjects, pretty much anything you can imagine. History, monsters, the histories of people, books about the Great War, all sorts of various scientific types of books. Winnie looks at Tyra. She has a lantern on the desk next to her, which seems to be running low. The light is just barely enough to cast a shadow over her face as she looks at Tyra and says, Fetch me some more oil for this light. I'm it's running low, and I've still got quite a bit of work to do tonight. Yes, of course. I uh, actually have, still have some. And she uh, goes and takes her own uh, flask of oil with her equipment that she's still still uh, wearing, and tops up the lantern. As the lantern gets filled with the oil, Winnie looks up at Tyra from her seated position across the desk and says sit gesturing towards the chair across from her she sits down she's still kind of shaken but she she gives a uh, smile Winnie uh, sort of half nods her head and says you seem like you have something on your mind would you care to share she looks up to Winnie and says the half-blood woman is dead. She would note from her familiarity with Winnie that the corners of her mouth give a slight twitch. Not enough that you would even dare to consider it a smile, but there was definitely some movement there. Good, and I assume you left no traces, yes? There were two who could have been witnesses, but they're dead too you seem hesitant are you sure that they were taken care of yes it's just um, one of them was a kid I didn't I didn't I didn't let them live I just I didn't let them live I I, I did I, I didn't even witness but 
this time her mouth seems to it's getting close to perhaps a smirk at this point she seems pleased by what Tara is saying and says excellent job tonight you have to understand what you've done is for the greater good she smiles kind of weakly thank you Winnie Winnie uh, nods back at Tara and says over time you will come to understand what you're doing better you will everything will become more clear to you and eventually you will lose this dreadful hesitation that you have she quietly nods and says Winnie uh, stands from her chair as the two women in the room hear a small caw off to the side of the room where there is an open window towards the outside. Winnie uh, sort of brushes her hand against her clothing as she steps over and retrieves with practiced hands a small piece of paper that was tied to the foot of a crow that had found its way to her window. She unfurls it and reads it with, again, that almost half-smirk that seems to mean that Winnie is pleased. She folds it back up and sets it off to the side before walking over to Tyra and putting a hand on her shoulder. She looks Tyra in the eyes and says, Get some rest for tonight. Tomorrow... I have another mission for you. Uh, of course, thank you. And I think that's where we'll call this one to a close. Joining me up next will be Justin. Justin, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and the character that you will be playing? Uh, I'm Justin. I am playing my character, Anak, who is a Fierna tiefling, which is just another kind of tiefling. Um, He will be a druid. And uh, I'm about to find out what exactly happened in my past because I got the basics, but who knows what actually happened. So, Anak has been leading the Oasis for quite some time now. In recent months, however, there have been rumors of a rebellion uprising stirring within your community. The sickness has been spreading more rapidly amongst the citizens of the Oasis, and there's concern that without a quick countermeasure, your entire civilization will be lost. In these times, you've turned to blood magic, something that has been pretty controversial between tieflings of the Oasis in the past. Many consider it a good thing, giving you access to more powerful forms of magic that could work to save your people, while others think that it's a terrible thing in contrast to hurt yourself in such ways as that type of magic requires in order to access magic that may or may not even be able to help. On this particular day, Anak has a meeting set up with Toxil, his brother, and the general of the Oasis's army. He enters the meeting room, a large room with a long table sitting in the middle of it, around which are a series of plush chairs. He's a large framed tiefling man with broad shoulders that are covered under a royal green robe, atop of which sits the animal furs that he has hunted in the past that he uses as decoration. He shakes Anak's hand stiffly as he takes a chair at the table and looks grimly towards you. Brother, I know that you've had quite a hard time lately with this rumored rebellion, and we've brought in quite a few of its members, but time after time they refuse to speak. They refuse to tell us who their leader is. They only repeat the same things over and over, 
They tell us that they won't stop until you refute this blood magic. They say you're spitting in the face of the old ones of our traditions. They say that's why the sickness is coming. That's ridiculous. I'm just trying to save these people. Why can't they understand that? You know I agree, but they refuse to see the good that comes from this magic. They only concentrate on tradition, and they say that breaking this is what's causing people to grow sick at a faster rate than has been coming. Perhaps he slams his fist on the table and looks upset, says, perhaps it's worth seeing things from their side. It's, you know, the black work. He likely will strike again before too long. Perhaps, at least for the time being, would it not be better to have a unified front to drive him back once again? And perhaps we can worry about this blood magic, about this sickness, after we repel him once more. I raise a hand to my head and start rubbing it, rubbing on my temples in annoyance. I suppose it's better to be unified. They don't know any better, but we must do what's best for our people. And with him coming, it's far better for us to be unified. He sort of arches his eyebrows in your direction and says, so you'll put a stop to it then? I... Yes. For now, at least. Battle this, and we'll see how the public feels after, perhaps. With a win, a victory, fresh in their minds, perhaps their loyalty will see beyond their own doubts and traditions and see that the future and victory is through my eyes. We can push past the past, this black orc even, and save ourselves. He nods as he stands up from the table and says, I'm glad you're willing to put aside the differences of this clan for the betterment of it. So where do we go from here? He walks across the room to one of the large windows that overlooks the oasis town that you reign over. And he says, well, if our scouts are to be believed, the Black Orc could be striking at any day now. Hopefully we have enough people left by then to repel him and his army. Well... The rebels may join us as well because they know that death is a far worse outcome than trying to fight off the rest of us. At least I hope. Are you saying, and he turns to look at you a little bit confused, the ones that we have imprisoned, should we leave them there or do you want us, Do you want them to be released? Well, I don't want them to come for me during the confusion, so perhaps we should keep them as a sort of secret army should the time arise where we need the extra help. A last-ditch effort. Should I set some sort of signal to our guards to let them know if we need them released? Yes, and give them simple weapons on their leaving, of course. Not now. Uh, they should do better than nothing, I should hope. He chuckles a little bit and says, of course, it would be foolish to supply them with weapons for now. What would you like for that signal to be? Perhaps light a flame, a colored one, so that they can see it without the enemy hearing our words. A blue blurazier. I will give the word to our guard, and with that he will cross back over to where Anak is and shake his hand once again. He will give you the farewell that would be commonplace between the two of you by this point, having grown up with the nobility of the Oasis, uh, it's customary any time that someone leaves the presence of one of the nobles, as they shake their hand, he looks into Anak's eyes and says, Long live the king, before exiting from this hall to go give word to the guard of what you have decided. Later that night, as... Anak sleeps in his chambers. He wakes up in the darkness to the sound of a horn ringing throughout the town, and he would recognize this as a warning signal that perhaps the oasis is under an attack or something is going on that needs official attention. Right. Uh, I'd get up out of bed immediately. Uh, grab a quarter staff and make my way outside in my <laughs> nightwear. Are you 
leaving your palace completely? No, just leaving the room to find a guard. Right. As you leave, you see tieflings of all shapes and sizes. Uh, the guard force that stays within your palace. They're making their way towards the front entrance, pulling armor on and picking weapons up as they make their way along in a sort of frenzied hurry. Alright, I'd run back in the room and grab my own armor of some sort with my own insignia on it, of course, and then rush out to see what's going on. Once Anak makes his way out to the front sort of entrance of his palace, he sees that there is a number of orcs that have already made their way fairly close to the palace. The tiefling army has been able to keep them back to a few hundred yards away from where you're currently at, but it looks like they are starting to lose ground. Uh, is my brother nearby? You do not see him around, no. Well, I find a guard nearby and say, we cannot lose the palace! Light the brazier. For the oasis! And he turns and uh, makes his way off towards the building where the rebels would be kept. Your sort of prison. I sigh and begin directing the army and such like the army general would. Are you getting directly involved or are you sort of commanding from the back lines? Commanding from the back. Okay. You watch as the armored guards start pouring out from the palace and they start to even up the odds. Shortly thereafter, you see an influx of people from the side of the town that the prison is on making their way over. They are quite loud in their approach as they run over and start swinging at any orc that moves with clubs, pitchforks, pretty much anything that they can get their hands on. As the rebels join up with your group, the tide starts turning back in your direction and you see the orc numbers start falling pretty rapidly as with this added bonus force you're able to repel them quite not easily but you're making pretty good progress against them you do see the black orc who you would know as their commander he's been quite a major thorn in your side in recent months he is atop of perhaps the biggest warg that you have ever seen he commands his army from the back as well wielding a giant club in one hand as the other holds the reins on his ward. As he sees that his group is losing numbers, though, he points the club in your direction. He's going to shout something in Orcish, which sounds quite angry, but then again, most Orcish sounds pretty angry to you. And shortly thereafter, he yanks the reins on his ward and the word turns on its heels, and he is going to retreat from the battle. The orcs that stay behind, some of them follow after their leader, while others stay to try to fight, and uh, the ones that stay behind are quickly and fairly easily cut down by your forces. Good, good. So, do they start regrouping after they've all been cut down? The tiefling army? Yes. Yeah. They, uh, once the battle is seemingly over, the armed forces tend, well, both the armed forces and the rebels seem to look at each other and then look around, questioning sort of what's supposed to happen next. They're not exactly sure whether the rebels are supposed to stay free or if they should recapture them. Some of them turn to look off towards your, towards the direction of your palace but they don't make a move away just in case they're needed to bring the rebels back under control. Right. I will look over them and step up, I suppose, so I can be seen by everybody. I assume there's like a staircase or something. Yeah. So I begin to address the crowd and say, uh, my people, the black orc has been defeated. And I raise my arm and say, the oasis is safe. You hear a loud cheer come from 
loyalists and rebels alike. And then I kind of mutter to myself, though I loathe to say it, we as a people need to be unified. And if that means removing the use of blood magic amongst our people, then I will do so. Because as we have all seen here, it will require all of the tieflings to hold back the black orc as well as just stay alive when the sickness ravages our people. You hear one of your guards pipe up as you say that, and he says, Well, what about how are we to fight off the sickness? Nothing has been working up until this point. I thought you said that the blood magic was our last chance. It may very well be, but if we don't have a chance against the black orcs as it stands... And that's what's a quicker death for us than those orcs just rushing over us. So you're just leaving us to die from the sickness because of these rebels? I'll say this. My command is law. He has a look on his face like he's not happy with that. And thanks to sort of continue fighting further. But after a couple of seconds of thinking about it, he sees the resolve in Anok's eyes and sort of backs down from challenging him further. With that said, the rebels have helped us with this victory, and for that they should be celebrated. Though they have turned against me, I'm willing to forgive them. The rebel group seems relieved at your words and your pardon, as they sort of tentatively back away from the guards, several of whom seem like they're tempted to go after them, but upon further thinking about it, respect your word. A second guard is going to step up towards where you're standing. And what of the blood hunters, your special force? Are they, what of them if there's no more blood magic to be allowed? Leave them be. If the rebels have a problem with them, they can take it up personally, but I will have no action against them. The guard sort of chuckles when he hears that and says, yeah, fat lot of chance those rebels will have against them. For now, have everyone tend to the wounded. If there's any official problems with what's going on from now on, we'll take it up tomorrow. Hearing your command, the uh, rest of the guard will disperse and start to care for those that have been injured in the fight. (sighs) This is a mess. I'm gonna go inside and see my advisor if there is one. Yeah, uh, your advisor would be waiting inside for you, almost as if he knew that you would be coming to him in what is obviously such a trying time. And as you step inside, he walks up to you and greets you, says, What can I do for you, my king? We have to figure out a way to keep the masses happy. I realize that Allowing the rebels to go free may keep them happy for now, but those who have been loyal may not be so happy. It seems a difficult balance to strike between those that want to keep the traditions alive and those that eschew them in the hopes of a brighter future. If I may suggest, perhaps perhaps we sleep on it for the night and see if ideas may present themselves in the morning upon clearer heads. Alright, make sure it is written into law that the blood hunters are not to be touched by any of the royalty or any guards. They should be left alone, but not exiled. I will see to it that it is posted on every notice board in town by the time the sun rises. A more personal note for them should be that they may not be welcomed by the people here, but I will always trust them. We will figure out this blood magic fiasco in the morning. <sighs> feels like such a step backwards. I understand. Sleep well, my king. Thank you. Farewell. With that, he will head off towards one of the other rooms to try to find uh, parchment and some way to write out the orders that you've given him. By the time Anak makes his way back to his bedroom and opens the door, when he opens it, he sees... A rather large figure standing between him and his bed, and he would recognize that as his brother Toxil, who stands before you with a stern look on his face. Toxil? What is this? So you're going back on your word so easily, I see. 
What do you mean? We were nearly wiped out by the black orcs. They made it nearly to the palace. And you just... You're throwing away the future of this town for those rebels? You're letting them just have their way? I would rather fight for the future in the long run than be wiped out by disgusting orcs today. You've been to the will of terrorists. I've been to the will of my people. He scoffs and says, You see, I knew this is exactly what I knew would happen when mother and father decided to let you be king. You're too weak for this. Regardless of what you think, this is how it is. You watch as your brother pulls a great axe from off of his hip and says, But not how it has to be. What are you trying to imply, brother? You can step down, or I will put you down. I don't want to do this, Anak. Please don't make me do something that we'll both regret. You don't have to do anything. You are choosing this future. You are choosing to kill everybody here. I'm choosing a future for this town, for our family, for our friends, for our people. You impetuous brother of mine, you know not what you do. I know far more than you give me credit for. Now I ask you again, are you going to step down or am I going to have to put you down? I will defend my decision to the death because that is what this will be, the death of our people. As you so wish. And he is going to step towards you with his great axe drawn and he's going to take a swing at you. Uh, I'm gonna try and dodge that. Yeah, he telegraphs his swing a little bit and Anak is able to duck underneath of it. His axe is buried in the wall behind you where you had been standing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is Anak doing after that? I'm going to try and strike him with my quarterstaff. Okay. Where are you, where are you aiming for? Uh, his hand. You, Anak smacks him in the hand with this staff, and he relinquishes his hold on the axe with that hand, mm-hmm. only to grab Anak by the throat and lift him slightly off the ground. By this point, you hear a commotion, and several guards start to come into the hallway from both directions. One of them shouts out and says, What's what's going on here? Toxil throws a knock down to the ground and points at him with his injured hand. He says, My brother was trying to kill me. He's he's trying to throw away the future of this town, the future of our people, for these these terroristic rebels. That is nonsense. I'm your king. He attempts to overthrow me. I attempt to do what is best for this city. How are we to go on fighting if you sacrifice us to the sickness? If you if you let us die before we even have a chance to see battle against the Black Orc again? This is not for you to decide, brother, for I am the king. By this point, the guards have started to close in on the two of you. And Anak would realize, as they're drawing their weapons, that they are definitely trained in his direction, rather than turned towards his brother. Oh, you would choose this as well, my people? One of them speaks up, and you recognize it as the voice that spoke up from the crowd earlier. He says, we need to see that this town, this oasis, has a future. Bending to the whim of traitors guarantees us nothing. I'm sorry, my king. How dare you? I would just kind of glare at them because I'm not about to make a move that would get me killed. Toxil looks at you and says, I don't want to see you dead, brother. I will let you flee, and I will come up with something to convince the people that you are not a bad man. Just, I need to know that you will leave and not endanger our people any longer. You'll see that your decision kills more than you'd like. Maybe that will be so, but there's no rewards without some risk. <laughs> you say that like I wouldn't, haven't already weighed the risk. I get up at the huff, grab some trinkets or whatever, shove them in a bag and try and walk out. The guards will split and let you pass as Toxil watches you walk away from the hallway. Uh, I'll walk up to that guard that spoke up. 
look him in dead in the eye and say, Now I'll remember you. Then I walk away. As Anak leaves the palace, the air around him is completely still after the bow. The town has already settled back into nighttime, and nobody notices as King Anak leaves the oasis. And that's where we will end your backstory. So yeah, that's this week's episode of D&D. I hope you guys enjoyed it and come back next week. If you did, please don't hesitate to spread the word on social media, leave us a review, or tell your friends who you think may enjoy what we're putting out there. Word of mouth and reviews are the two best ways to support fledgling podcasts like our own, so it would really mean a lot if you could take just a minute out of your day to help us out with that. I want to thank my fantastic players for working with me on this story that's just getting started. I also want to thank Dylan Conrad O'Brunt for Fiverr.com for our intro music and battle music. And most of all, hey everybody, thank you for downloading the first episode of lgbt and I'm very excited to have people listening to this. Uh, I just wanted to give everyone a quick trigger warning for this first episode. There is some content here that may be difficult for some people to listen to in the first half of this episode uh, involving the death of a young child. If anybody does not feel comfortable listening to that, I encourage you to skip ahead. You won't miss anything vital to the narrative, uh, and I completely understand. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it, and I hope you stick around for the rest of the adventure. I want to thank everyone that listened to this episode. Stay safe and have a great week.